This is episode 70 of the Solier Pride podcast, and today's guest is Michelle Weber Deegan. She is the Research and Education Coordinator at TIRR Memorial Hermann, as well as a practicing clinician with over 20 years of experience. She graduated with a Communication Sciences and Disorders degree from the University of Texas at Austin and the University of Houston. She has completed additional education and training in research and epidemiology. She has special interests in dysphagia, brain injury, ethics, and spinal cord injury. She is a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swelling disorders, and she presents locally and nationally on a variety of topics related to these areas of interest. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Hello, my friends. Welcome, welcome back. Happy New Year. I hope everyone had a wonderful, wonderful holiday season and it was super relaxing and everything that should have been. Mine was so crazy busy. I did more fees during the week of Christmas and New Year's than I ever have, which was crazy, but I'm grateful. I love my job. I'm just a little tired. So there's that. (laughs) But I am super inspired and invigorated to get 2019 off to an incredible start. And I, first of all, just wanted to kind of clear the air about some things. People had been wondering about what was going on with the medical SLP solution and then hearing some chatter about this new thing called the MedSLP Collective. So here's the story. So long, long time ago, about a year and a half ago, <laughs> I had this vision for a website where all medical SLPs from beginner, from student clinician to veteran practicing for 40 years plus could go and get real life evidence-based practice, mentorship, and education. So, you know, the kind maybe we didn't get in grad school or really you just kept finding the research is coming faster than we could clinically implement. Or you have a patient waltzing in today and you have no clue what to even do with them. So that kind of education. So I joined forces with the SLP Solution to bring this website to life. And the content, the contributors, the mentors, the webinars for CEUs, the blind peer-reviewed resources were exactly what I envisioned, um, but we ran into some tech issues that were beyond my control. I decided to part ways with the SLP Solution at the end of 2018, and I am so, so, so grateful to them for helping us get off the ground. I can't thank you I can't thank those guys enough for everything that they did and for helping our little medical SLP crew come to life. So thank you. So now I have created a brand new website called the MedSLP Collective because this really truly is a collective effort. So I wish I could say that I was smart enough to run this site on my own, but really I'm just a chicken with my head cut off trying to juggle a million balls in the air at once. And I know so truly and deeply that we are so much better together. This podcast is obviously evidence of that. I've done 70 episodes, and I think one of them has been solo. So to the other 69 other people that have been on this podcast, thank you. So we are so much stronger. We are so much better together as a field. So collectively, between the moderators, mentors, and members, I've created a site that I am super, super proud of in the new MedSLP Collective. So this is a site that is giving MedSLPs the education they need 
to treat the patients that deserve it the most and are expecting that we deliver. So what does the MedSLP Collective include? Each week, a new resource is added to the site in the form of a handout and a video and a variety of topics ranging from how to perform cranial nerve exam to various aphasia treatments to where to start with your patient with dementia to what to do with your voice patient. And each resource is blind peer-reviewed by our panel of university professors, meaning they don't know who wrote it. Goes through a series of revisions with all references and recommended readings included, so you know that it is the most up-to-date, evidence-based information that we have available that all of the experts and contributors find for you. And these resources never go away. We just continue to add more and more based on the feedback from the members to the library. Aside from the resources, we have webinars that have been registered for ASH CEUs. So the minute you log in, you have access to over 10 hours of CEUs. Some of the webinars have included, and these have all been past guests on this uh, podcast. We have Intro to Trach and Vent with Jamie Fisher, Performing Clinical Swallow Vow with Tiffany Wallace, Right Brain Hemisphere Damage with Hillary Cooper, Aphasia Treatment Essentials with Megan Sutton, Compensatory Strategies versus Rehab Exercises with Yvette McCoy, Voice of Allen Treatment with Dr. Kate Crivell. There's a few more that I can't think of right now off the top of my head. And starting in 2019, due to feedback from the members, we're going to have even longer live webinars. There'll be two hours now instead of one. And then the recording will always be available in the library for later viewing. Additionally, we have a private Facebook group that's moderated by various experts in their respective areas. So you can have your toughest clinical cases answered by experts who really know their stuff. So... Few of them include Megan Sutton with aphasia, Dr. Natalie Douglas with dementia and other sniff-related issues, Dr. Kristen King with TBI and trachs, Dr. Alexandra Basilakos with aphasia, motor speech disorders, Dr. Kate Crivell with voice and dysarthria. Um, I also have about 10 different <laughs> dysphagia mentors that are on there. I can't remember all of you off the top of my head right now, but know that I'm eternally grateful for all of you. And we do also have some PEDS resources in there. We are hoping to build this library out a lot more, but we do have two PEDS mentors. We have Ramya Kumar and Raquel Garcia. They are wonderful gifts from heaven as far as uh, medical PEDS, medical SLP goes. So also, Facebook isn't your jam. We also have a separate private forum that comes with its own app. So you can enter your questions there. Our mentors all access that, get notifications from that app too. So if you don't even want to deal with Facebook, you don't have to. I just want you guys to get the information. So if you ask me when this would be open and I gave you a really vague answer or you've been waiting on the waiting list for forever, please know that I am so, so, so sorry. And I was working my little tail off behind the scenes to make this thing come to life and to make it rock solid and everything that I wanted it to be before I launched it out into the universe. So uh, the doors will be opening to the MedSLP Collective this weekend. So you can go to MedSLPCollective.com starting this Saturday to get signed up. Registration enrollment will be open for one week. Um, And that is because it is a crazy week. And there's a million things I have to do to get you guys enrolled in the site and get things going. So that's why enrollment's only open for a week. So please sign up uh, this Saturday, January 12th. So Registration will start this Saturday, January 12th. Go to MedSLPCollective.com. Would love to see you in there. Um, I love everything about this site. It is all peer-reviewed resources by clinicians for clinicians, and your patients deserve it. So um, without further ado, (laughs) this next episode that we have coming up here, this is all about ACDF. I know so many of you have been asking for more information about it. I know when I get a patient with this and their chart, it just drives me up the wall to see that they've never had any 
information given to them that this surgery may possibly cause dysphagia. So uh, this woman right here, Michelle Deegan, if any of you are on 613, she provides like the most incredible answers on SIG-13 all the time. I just was blown away by her and really kind of scary and intimidating, but she's actually probably one of the most fun people I've ever gotten to talk to. So hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Please let me know if you have any questions. And as always, you can download the show notes. Um, you can go to bit.ly forward slash SYP podcast. And this episode is 070. So bit.ly forward slash SYP podcast 070. All right. Hello, Michelle. Hello. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for doing this for me. Sure. I've had numerous, numerous requests to talk about this topic, so I'm so glad that you're so knowledgeable in it and willing to share your knowledge with us. Sure. Yes. All right. So why don't you tell people who you are first, and then we'll get into it. Sure. I am the research education coordinator for Tier Memorial Herman, um, or more so the Memorial Herman Healthcare System. I'm a clinical speech pathologist with 20 years of experience, and I've worked in inpatient rehab for the last decade of that time. And my primary patient population are is patients with spinal cord injury and brain injuries, but my preference is spinal cord injury. Awesome. What What's your title again? Research Education Coordinator. Oh, that's awesome. Yes. So I spend half the day clinical and half the day reading articles and educating and training students and supervisors and that sort of thing. That is so great. Yeah. Did you know that was like a job? Like, did you aspire to do that or did you, how did that happen? Well, so my hospital system, I'm very lucky. They believe in fairness. Awesome. They had created the <laughs> position for both physical and occupational therapy. And that had been going on for a few years and it had developed out of a need for some requirements in those disciplines. And so when I, when I started at the facility, I said, well, speech doesn't have that position yet. So could we create it? And then I interviewed for it and I got it. I love it. I love it. You created it. I love that so much, Michelle. So that explains why you know so much about all this stuff. Yes. yes. All right. So tell us what we're going to get into today. All righty. So I, I, we're going to talk about anterior cervical disectomy infusion. We can throw in some co-occurring issues that happen in that population. We can talk about dual injury with, with the BI component and how that impacts the swallow. We can talk about patients on ventilators who are trying to wean off the ventilator post-spinal cord injury and how breathing and swallowing go together. There's quite a few different avenues we can take. All right. Well, we'll try to tackle them all if we can. Okay. Where do you want to start? So I think the... The biggest question I get about this particular patient population from from colleagues or other people in general is, how do I treat it? And I really want to encourage speech pathologists in general to do instrumental swallows in this particular patient population. I mean, I think we should do it in all patient populations. But in this one, you really have to tease apart, is it a mechanical injury? or mechanical restriction from the surgery itself and the, the subsequent comorbidities that the patient is experiencing? Or is it a neurologic injury? Or is it a combination of the two of them? And if you don't have really good instrumental data, you're going to have a very difficult time teasing that apart. And or you're going to start treating it with 
our dysphagia exercise barragement that people can throw at things <laughs> and not really know what you're treating and then be really either really happy when it works out in two weeks, spontaneous recovery swelling went down, or be really disappointed when none of that seemed to fix the patient's situation. And I am I do both modified barium swallows and fees. So I really am a big proponent of actually doing both in this particular awesome. patient population. Now, some people might find that to be overkill. Why does she want to do both procedures? Eh, I'll, I'll, I'll go with that. So a lot of these patients have obviously some pharyngeal issues. You want to see the edema, if that is in case in, in, in the, the issue. You want to see if there's osteophytes premorbidly that they have now surgically put plates and or screws through. And, you know, maybe they didn't see that when they were operating very clearly, depending on how they went in. And you want to kind of follow the swallow through the upper esophagus, because if there is any sort of unilateral recurrent laryngeal nerve injury, you're going to see some changes in how the first start of the esophagus moves the bolus through. So really, really, I prefer, if it's possible, to do an, an MBS first. But I also really enjoy a fees exam in those patients who just the minute you meet them are very hoarse and very wet sounding. And I kind of need to know, are you even managing your secretions? So from an instrumental perspective, I, I really think you need to, you need to look inside and outside and put those pieces together. Because if you assume one thing, you might be very wrong. Could give you lots of case and points of patients who've had osteophytes and then been surgically fused and then you know obviously they've been swallowing for years with the osteophytes right and, now, <laughs> and that's what their families will tell me too sometimes I'm right like, well, yes i know they've been swallowing for years with those osteophytes but now we have a plate on top of that we have some screws you fix the spine maybe you've changed their neck posture and then maybe you've caused a nerve injury at the same time i mean you've you've created the perfect storm so to speak so let me, we might get into this later on, but this is one thing that like always drives me bananas. And I don't know if it's an issue that you come across or do you find that, because most of the time these patients go in for this like electively. Yes. If, is that a word? Electively? Yeah, you can they, elect to have your spine. <laughs> yeah, you can elect <laughs> to have it done. But mm -hmm. I feel like all the patients that I see mm -hmm. with this have mm -hmm. no idea that they're going to have swallowing troubles. Like the surgeon never warned them about it. It's, and it, you know, it's, it's very interesting you're, you're telling me that. So I have colleagues, personal colleagues, who've had the elective version. And 100% of them have walked away with dysphagia yeah. as their yeah. symptoms. So one of them was a speech pathologist. She, she knew going in that that was a risk factor. Actually, two of them were speech paths. And then another one was a physical therapist. So, and both of them had longstanding dysphagia symptoms for quite some time, especially with solid foods. It's not often written on the consent form. They'll talk it's about crazy. all kinds of, yeah, you might be paralyzed. You might get a trach. You might be on the ventilator. Mm -hmm. We're not going to mention swallowing. Forget that, that we didn't do that. And what's really frustrating here in the Houston area is we have surgeons who, since it's elective and they want their numbers to look pretty, they just send you on home within 48 hours of the procedure and cross their fingers that you don't get readmitted with dysphagia or dysphagia complications from dysphagia. But then if you do get readmitted, you won't be on their service. Right. 
So, you know, Paul's not in their court anymore and they disavow any knowledge of the possibility that they caused that complication. But yes, it's very odd to me that people are not informed that you're going to operate high in their neck and, you know, they could have nerve injuries, they could have voice changes, they could have swallowing changes. Yeah, I I feel like so many times when I go in and I do fees on patients, like the SLP will tell me like this laundry list of problems and I'll open the chart and they'll say like, status post ACDF two weeks ago. And I'm like, did you know they had this done? They're like, oh, well, you know, either they don't know what it means or they do, but they don't really understand what it can do. And I'm like, well, this explains everything. And then I say to the patient, (laughs) did you know you were going to have swallowing problems? And they're like, I had no idea. I didn't even know it was a thing. I just all of a sudden can't swallow after the surgery. And I don't know what happened. And I'm like, oh my God. So it just drives me bananas that these patients are not educated about it. So they do end yes. up on our caseload. And so now we've got to figure out what to do with them. We're lucky if they yes. end up. I'm really excited when they end up on our caseload because I do believe we can we can offer some solutions. I end up getting them on my caseload because I get the ones where elective went real wrong. <laughs> That's what I'm going to say. Okay. It's not really about dysphagia at that point only. It's my spinal cord got injured, got swollen, I threw a stroke in the cord. I'm now paralyzed and vent dependent. So I get the most extreme version of that group. But I also get like, I could give you recently, I had a a guy who came to us six weeks after his ACDF from a traumatic spinal cord injury. And he's never seen a speech pathologist. And he'd been NPO for six weeks. Yeah. And he was vent dependent, young, early 20s. Oh, goodness. Not even the surgery they did not like would have probably resolved the swelling within a couple of weeks. Like, I just think that whatever facility came from didn't do swallow studies with patients on vents. Yeah. Yeah. And so immediately I did a swallow study and he could be on a regular diet, which yep. was really disappointing that. Yeah. We didn't know, but then I've also had the you know some interesting cases with like central cord syndrome where like I, I've had some with superior laryngeal nerve injuries, which are not as easy to identify and recognize. And so those sensory issues with the bolus really playing havoc, but because they're central cord, they're walking usually. So they're walking, don't really use the hands or arms very well. And so it's that battle of being conservative versus a little bit liberal. I'll tell you that in 20 years of practice, I've, I've edged towards being more liberal. Awesome. Start off that way. Yeah. Any of us do. I think we're afraid of the big, bad aspiration word. Uh, And then um, we start to see that in fact, we can, we have a little bit of maneuverability there. So, yeah. So let me, let me ask you, can we kind of talk about like some of like the telltale, not telltale signs, but Mm -hmm. The signs, the signs. Generally, we're looking at voice changes, especially if there's a recurrent laryngeal or superior laryngeal nerve injury. We're looking at sounding very wet. I don't get a lot. I get a more silent aspiration in this group, so I don't want to say they never cough, but the typical signs of dysphagia. So if you just see ACDF, do you just automatically send for an instrumental? Pretty much. Yeah. No, I love it. I just, yeah. according to the VA handbook on paralyzed veterans, they recommend that dysphagia be assessed on every awesome. patient with either a spinal cord injury or, and, and I consider having the ACDF 
an injury, even if it's not like a traumatic injury, even if you're adding hardware, moving things around electively, you've agitated the system. And so I prefer to never, ever guess. And since I'm blessed to work where I do, I don't have to guess. Yeah, that's great. So let's get a little more specific. So yes. on on MBS, what are kind of some of the things that you're used to seeing? Oftentimes, the first battle is positioning. So our patients at TIER are lucky enough to, I mean, I know most facilities put patients in the, the, the different chairs that, you, that are available. We don't do that. We design each patient their own wheelchair while they're inpatient. So that really allows for me to get the best positioning for them, make sure they're not sitting on their wound, that sort of thing. Headrest, no headrest, we have to kind of like play with that. And then of course we have the neck collar. Now, you know, some research has shown that just an average normal everyday person wearing a neck collar, you or me without any overt signs of dysphagia, it's going to alter our swallow pattern to have one on. First of all, it's going to alter mastication of the bolus because you're going to have this collar immediately under your jaw and that's going to restrict some some movement and then it actually changes some parameters for timing of the swallow not so much that you and I couldn't compensate for that but someone who already is deconditioned been laying in a hospital bed atrophying is going to have as a challenge then on top of that a lot of them after they've been fused can be fused into either more a more kyphotic position so they're more forward or they can be more hyperextended. And I find that a lot of people don't check for this, but if you can really line up your imaging well, and then I know you're not supposed to have the patient move their neck that much. Obviously, they're in a neck collar. But can you get them to the front of the neck collar a little bit more so? So you can get the spine as straight as possible because a hyperextended spine makes for poor PES opening. And we don't need that. So let's let's reduce the odds of that happening if we can at all do that. A lot of the patients will swallow multiple times because we have some issues with the pressure generating system. So although they get great velum closure, they can't maybe sustain it. Maybe the swelling is restricting them, pushing against them. Their pharyngeal constriction is impaired because of the edema between the surgical site and the posterior pharyngeal wall. And then that edema can travel all the way down to the PES and restrict opening on the backside there. So you kind of have to look at that. And then are they able to clear residue or are they unable to clear residue for those very same reasons? Or has it been so long that they've started to atrophy and maybe they're older with some sarcopenia and some deconditioning in general that they now have a really wide pharynx and they just can't get tongue-based retraction because they can't they can't close the gap because they've atrophied on the one side. You know, I've actually also seen that the swelling can help some people because the swelling sometimes protects the airway for some patients. Then when the swelling goes down, that's when the dysphagia symptoms occur and they actually look worse. So seeing both sides. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. What you said about the neck collar, I had one guy, he had been, it was like, I think two months after, and he had been transferred to a facility that no longer had an SLP. Uh-huh. And that was the only reason he was there. So finally, they transferred him out of that facility to another one. And that's where I saw him and did a fees. And, you know, I said to him, I said, do you have to wear the neck collar all the time? And he said, yeah, the doctor said I have to wear it all, you know, 24-7. I asked the SLPA, I said, did you see if he has to wear it 
during meals or while we do the test? And he said, no, I don't know. I didn't ask. And I was like, well, I'm going to go ask. So the doctor was right outside. And I said, is it possible for me to tell, like, how's he doing? Can I take the neck collar off to do the swallow test? And he's like, oh, yeah, he doesn't need to be wearing it. He's fine. And I was like, oh, my God, this because the poor man was like, I feel like I can't swallow like this neck collar is I'm so uncomfortable. I feel yes. like I just can't get the food down. Yes. And I was like, why did nobody ask the doctor? So and yeah. I don't know if that's regional, but in South Texas, we generally recommend 12 weeks. And I don't really know where that recommendation comes from, because we still going to image the spine to make certain that they fuse properly. Some people do need more than the 12 weeks, but I, I question whether people need less than the 12 weeks. Yeah. It was like, this guy had like healed up really quickly and was like doing great. He didn't even need to really be there anymore. So it was just oh. all a surprise that, you know, no one had gotten to him way sooner, but yeah, now we know. Now we know. Now we know. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So that's MBS. So what do you see on fees? Fees, you know, initially go through the nose, everything's looking great, go through the velum, still looking pretty good. And then we often have a really narrow pharynx from the swelling. Kind of hard for me to see osteophyte on top of that sometimes because the swelling's so dense. So if that is an issue, I, I won't see it as much. And then usually seeing if there is the possibility of a unilateral vocal cord being out or bilateral in some rare cases. I've seen some arytenoid dislocations from intubation, extubation issues related to the surgery. I think that's the main thing is that the, you know, is the airway protection working or not working? And then if they're so swollen, like we've said, you just, you never see the bolus clear because there's nowhere for it to clear other than going straight into the airway. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Ugh, I God, I hate this procedure. <laughs> it gets me so fired up every time I see one. Well, it's really traumatic. And I don't know that surgeons really think about the quality of life consequences that go with the yeah. procedure. And I know they're trying to maybe stop, you know, this patient's arms are going numb or they're unable to stand. And so they see the big picture of I got to I got to save their gait. I got to save their hand control. And they don't think that there's this consequence to our area because they're right. worried about other gross, larger body systems. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, before I get on any more of a tirade, what should we, <laughs> where should well, we, where go, should we next? go now? <laughs> so I think that another thing that people should kind of be aware of is this, okay, so you have edema. And so are you going to treat that? Are you going to treat that? Yes. Just stick an ice pack down there. As a speech pathologist, I don't really feel qualified to treat edema. Now, I don't know if people are aware that the reason like physicians don't like to use steroids to treat the edema after this particular procedure is that it reduces the ability of the bone to fuse on top of the hardware. It can be a complication. Gotcha. So... Although we say, mm, shrink it, let's get the swelling down. There might be this negative sequelae that the patient will end up being in that neck brace longer and they might not thank you for that. So I think it's kind of a balance. And generally, in many patients, I don't know about your experience, two to four weeks, the swelling's down enough for me to kind of move forward. And, yeah. and then if there's a nerve issue or another issue going on, I, I can address it. But I know there's a lot of pressure to treat. Let me treat them. Let me, let me give them something. I mean, I guess if we're going to go with the use it or lose it principle, and, and I have done the McNeil dysphagia therapy program, 
maybe if we can just find one consistency that they can keep swallowing during that time. But how much of that is necessarily skilled intervention? I'll be honest, since my patients are are often vent dependent, I'm working on getting the passenger valve on them. I'm working on some other goals that will carry over to dysphagia treatment, but may not be the actual treatment with standard exercises and the like. I don't Yes. I think what's most interesting about this particular procedure is that there are a lot of weird things that can go wrong. I think edema is <laughs> it's the simplest thing that can go wrong. Uh, the literature reports on one case of HO of the vocal cords, so heterotrophic ossification where the bones actually... I've never heard that word before. Yeah. Oh, you haven't? (laughs) Say that slower for me. Heterotrophic ossification. Okay. We we like to call it HO in rehab. All right. So HO happens often like in the knee joint, in the elbow joint, in joints that are really mobile, and the processes that are around our vocal cords are are mobile. And so that's been one rare issue. Another rare complication I've had is because cranial nerve 12 has a branch that comes through C1, which people may not be aware of, you can end up with reduced tongue strength and coordination from those very high cervical injuries that have been repaired. In addition, some physicians, when they have to fuse the occiput portion of the skull down through C1, C2, C3, that's a really critical region for swallowing and us having mobility. Like we throw our head back to swallow pills. I'm not saying it's wise. I'm just saying that's what people do. So people throw their head back for all kinds of things and they think that's okay. And then suddenly they can't throw their head back anymore. And they've been using that as their compensatory strategy prior to ACDF. And now that is not going to be their compensatory strategy. So losing a lot of mobility, like also head turns, which you and I might use to open the PES. Can't do that. Refused now. Chin tuck. Can't do that. We're fused now. So a lot of these compensatory strategies we might pull from our little grab bag are are not going to work in this patient population, which brings me to the the tricky one that I know might raise some red flags, but we're going to go there. All right. So neuromuscular electrical stimulation (laughs) post-ACDF. I'm not going to tell you, let me just put it to you this way. I waited 18 years to take the class. Then I took it twice from two different providers. So kind of was resistant. That's my bias. I should put that out there. In this patient population, though, if they can't do your exercises, can't do your Shakir, they can't, uh, maybe they can do your Masako. I'll say they can't do that. They can't do a lot of our exercises. And they've been laying in bed and they're immobile in a neck collar. So they sure aren't moving. What are we supposed to do? do. I do try standard therapy first because like I told you, edema going down usually corrects the majority of the problem. Then I throw in some McNeil dysphagia and usually we're good to go. But there's that rare group that has some interesting things going on in there, really wide pharynx, not getting contraction, need to get a bolus through, been known to try some NMES. And so... I don't pull it out as the first thing and I really think about it before I do it. What are we trying to achieve? Are we trying to achieve tongue-based retraction? Are we trying to achieve pharyngeal constriction? All other things being equal. All other things being taken care of. By taking care of, I mean this. Sometimes 
I need ENT to inject the vocal cord. Like I need some, I need some medical things done first. And in rehab, sometimes that's not so easy. Like we have to send them out to get that done and then bring them back. And so getting some of those structural safeguards in place before we head into treatment is definitely ideal, even if it doesn't always occur. But have been known to use it in some rare instances for patients who could not do exercises, in fact. And we are in rehab, so we need to clinically reason and kind of make each patient their own case study, which is what we end up doing. Awesome. I love it. I feel like if you have something in your toolbox that you can use, you might as well try it. Yes. Yes. I'm a big, I'm a big believer and do the, do 15, 15 trials of it, you know, 15 sessions and then do a repeat instrumental stat. Like we got to see if it's working or not working because if it's not working, we need to go back to the drawing board. Sometimes for some patients recently, we had one who had to have a, he was fused C4 to seven, I believe. And the doctor didn't realize because he didn't go up further that he had a huge osteophyte at C3. So the C3 with the plate on it from four to seven created the perfect slide awesome. right into yeah. the airway. I mean, just right in. So he yeah. agreed to go back in, remove the osteophyte, level out the hardware, which, you know, having more than one ACDF oh. puts you at greater risk for complications, but in this case, really needed it. Then the patient had so much swelling, it protected his airway. We started McNeil dysphagia. Then when the swelling went down, that failed. Oh no, you see where this is going. It's like a roller coaster. Yeah. Very distraught. Oh my God, am I good? Am I not good? I don't know what she's telling me. Then he started NMES and approximately three weeks later, he was on a regular diet with some liquids. Awesome. So it was like this. But yeah, it, had, it yeah. was constant instrumental studies. He had three or four and checking in to see what's the current problem? What's the current etiology? What can we do to address that? Can we, you know, how can we problem solve this? So awesome. I love it. Where else are we going? Breathing. I love breathing. breathing. Let's talk That's about important, breathing. I guess. Breathing is so important. It's actually more, I actually tell patients it's more important than swallowing. <laughs> That's my I, line. I, I think so. Yeah, yeah. You know, we're not going to swallow everyone would not breathing. Yeah. <laughs> we're not going to be doing anything for not breathing. Yeah. So I've you know, I, I think you've done a podcast on the EMST, which is excellent. I do find that for my patients who are on ventilators, obviously can't really do it yet. And sometimes even after they're off the vent, they can't do it. I've had it impact stoma size and healing, especially since we're actively downsizing a trach and trying to get it out of a patient. Sometimes having them blow really hard, the patient can't separate the pressures from the throat to the to the mouth. So some other ideas that we've done, um, we've introduced a very inexpensive, I want to say like $7 peak flow meter, trying to gather information. We don't do it all the time, maybe once a week on, I actually have the patient cough into it, take the average of three, try and get some idea. And I tell them, until you can cough well enough to get out your phlegm in your upper airway, uh, we're not taking this trach out. And obviously the trach is a complication associated with the ACDF. You know, it's a natural thing that happens there. So they want it out. And so working on that, also introducing staircase ventilation exercises. I don't know how many people are familiar with that, but having patients stack a breath on top of a breath on top of a breath and or do the opposite when they exhale kind of like 
taking a really big inhale and then letting out a little bit of air for as long as they can and kind of learning to control. But most importantly, post-spinal cord injury, often seen in ACDF, is inhalation is impacted. And you need a strong inhalation in order to get a strong cough. And we can't expect our patients to cough up what they might have aspirated if they don't have a cough and we didn't help train it back into their life. Love that. Yes. Yes. And I think that a lot of our patients, I don't know if this is commonplace, should be wearing abdominal binders. It helps, it helps give support to the core and the trunk while they are learning to control that breath again. Oh, I, yeah. I don't know about that one. Okay. So we advocate for patients wearing abdominal binders. And at first they don't really like it. Nobody likes it. Is it like a girdle type thing? It's like Like, a girdle thing. Yes. It's kind of like what they made you wear after you had a baby. Yeah. That's what I was thinking of. I'd love to put one back on right now. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Uh, I think we all would. So we, we have the patient wear that and it helps them get that core stability. And then they can do some breathing exercises at the same time that they're doing that. So, so that's another treatment area that I feel that can balance out. If you can't work on the dysphagia portion directly while the edema is there, can you work on the breathing to support them? Can you work on getting their cough back? Can you work on, I mean, I I don't know how many, I don't know how I'd write a goal for this, but I think I do write a goal for it. Pharyngeal expectoration. I mean, men know what this is. And since... Since 90% of my patients end up being men, especially if it's a traumatic spinal cord injury, you just tell a man to hawk up a loogie and he knows what you're talking they do about. It. They do. Yeah. They do. Unless they're a little high class. But other than that, they will, they will do it for you. And sometimes when you're practicing swallowing and that PES won't open, if I can give you a little bit and then have you just give it back to me, I'm okay with that. So women are harder to let go of that. I think, yeah. I think just... We have a hard time with that, but yeah, still a valid technique. I'll tell you this little side story. Um, so at one point I was doing a PhD. I made it 42 hours in. Oh my God. Michelle. Yeah. Epidemiology. <laughs> let me just tell you, it's a great field, but uh, they don't, they don't really understand rehab. And in epidemiology, we're considered tertiary rehab, which means we're like three doors down, you know? So it didn't sit well with you. No, no. They wanted they wanted large studies. What they didn't understand, and I'll kind of briefly go over it. My patient population being spinal cord injury, I created a study of every single admission to tier for one year, C1 to C7. The study has never been published because it was supposed to be the dissertation that I didn't finish. And um, there were 28 patients in this study. 24 were men. See, it goes back to our whole... There you go. They're primarily men. Four were women. And I wanted to look at who had dysphagia. So they got instrumentals immediately, immediately. And then, you know, follow up MBS under treatment if they needed it. Now, you might be surprised to know that of all those patients, only four had prolonged dysphagia. And... I want to say, I know for a fact, I'm trying to recall because it's been, it's been a few years now, two of them were due to paralyzed vocal cords. So that was something that you would be able to hear at the bedside in that case because they both had hoarse vocal quality. The other two, I'm faulting on my recollection of what it was, but 
you know, the two that had the vocal cord got it injected, dysphagia pretty much yeah. resolved. Yeah. So, I mean, in general, these patients do well. It's just the the rare weird ones that have some multi-system issues, the retropharyngeal abscess at the same time that their tooth was pulled, that their osteophyte decided to come through. Like, <laughs> you know, those are the ones I get. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I imagine quite a few straightforward ACDFs just go home from the hospital and they don't eat hamburgers for six months. And maybe they lose 20 pounds. Um, drinking a lot of protein shakes, kind of like you do after you get your tonsils out. So we're we're really seeing the worst of the worst. Should we be consulted sooner? Definitely. Should we be consulted on all of them? Definitely. So that was the end of your PhD story. Well, yeah, they they thought they wanted three hundred. I told them if you want three hundred, I'll be collecting data for yeah. a decade. Yeah, I, they really wanted to see how I would do statistics on some things, but they wanted me to do statistics on things not in rehab and. I just wasn't interested. I don't blame you. I know. I don't blame you. I, and you know, that's what's hard about our population in general. You know, you could put a hundred patients that is post ACDF in a room together and, you know, maybe 70 of them look good. I mean, they look great. They're going home. So finding those 30, finding out what happens to them, you know, and, and it could all, it could be very different. I wasn't going to get them what they needed. So, oh. It's okay. Well, I still think you have the coolest job ever. So thank you. <laughs> I like it. It's a lot less stressful than having to write grants to justify a third of your salary. Yeah. So let's look at it that way. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So where are we going next? Where are we going next? Do you want to get a little researchy? Deal. Researchy. Well, some of these studies are older, but they don't publish a lot on this topic. So kind of have some oldies, but goodies and went scrounging around for some newer ones. So if we look at the research, one of my first favorite articles in dysphagia, Abel et al. was cervical spinal cord injury and deglutition disorders. And they talked about how a significant number of patients who end up with complications from ACDF and have dysphagia need a PEG sooner rather than later. And I do, I'm kind of torn on that one. I'll tell you why. I don't think that our patients post ACDF really need to have any sort of NG or going through their pharynx if at all possible, because they're already pretty aggravated in that region in general, and they've had a lot going on. So, but then if they're one of those groups that heals pretty quickly and have a, has a fast turnaround, I don't know about your region of the country, we're required to leave the peg in place for six weeks before we're allowed to pull it. So I've had patients who've done rather well, rather quickly, who then didn't need the peg yeah. any longer. But if I have to choose... I'm going to err on the side of the peg in healthy, healthier individuals. Well, you want, because I know that was, that topic came up. I can't remember where it came up, but somebody said something like, my patient doesn't need this tube anymore, but the doctor said that it has to stay in for six more weeks. Oh, okay. So what I generally do is once the patient is on a diet that we'll consider self-sustaining, that may not be totally regular, but you know, soft ground, something that they can handle. If they're eating 80% of every meal and they're not losing weight, 
and they can take their meds, even if it's just crushed in applesauce or puree, because maybe they just can't get that PES wide enough for some of those pills. I'm our, our thing is more about nutrition and hydration. Sometimes the bigger issue is not the food, it's the water consumption. So they've just, and they, it, and some of it's because they can't reach the water because they now have the spinal cord injury on top of the ACDF. And so at our site, we've created, I always on instrumentals, always, always, always test with a straw in this particular group because they're more likely if they're going to self-hydrate, need a straw and someone's not just going to stand by them and keep giving them cup sips of water when they can't use their hands. So it's better to know, can they control a bolus coming at them pretty quickly with a straw? We also use our OT department makes this super long straw. I mean, we're talking like the longest straw I think I've ever seen. I want to say the straw is like two feet long. I mean, oh my God. maybe longer, might be three feet. It's like, I think they get some kind of tubing and they just self-cut it. And then you can put the water container like in like a, the equivalent of like a car cup holder, but on their wheelchair. And they like give, they make it and they mount it so the patient can get it from different angles. So it's like a beer helmet. It, okay. Yes. <laughs> I don't know what that is. <laughs> I'm going to go with you on that. I do not. <laughs> Drink it's like so. this thing that goes on your head and you put your beer in it and then it has a straw oh, that goes from yeah <gasps> yeah. yeah it's kind of like that <laughs> okay. but a lot of our patients also have camel backpacks the camel packs to yeah, 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 drink yeah. their fluids so i mean th- that works too but but we yes. track it we track it pretty closely <laughs> like because and if they can't get the peg removed at that time i at least want to get it trimmed down like and maybe just little cap put on it so it becomes more flush with their skin. Because if we're wrapping that abdominal binder around them with the peg tube rolled up in there, you know, it can get kind of, yeah, kind of not good. And they're going to have the same rate of skin breakdown around a peg site that any other population probably would. So, you know, the sooner we can reduce any aggravation in the region, that's ideal. But I if they end up being discharged before we can prove that they were nutritionally stable and adequate hydration, I always strongly recommend finding them an internist with at least some familiarity with spinal cord injury and how it resolves and or a PM&R rehab type physician who can follow them. And I always explain to the family, if your internist isn't comfortable pulling this peg out it's not rocket science i don't know if you've seen a peg removed but (laughs) even a trach removed plenty yeah i really feel i could do this i mean i know it's not your scope of practice but i I don't feel it's rocket science yeah so finding them you know a gi doc or somebody who will remove it in x number of weeks after they kept a food log or a food journal yeah because i had told that's i told one of the slps i was like just have them like just have them plug it just have them cap it don't worry about it and they're yeah. like, well, well, how do they flush it every day then? I'm like, well, they don't have to if there's not crap mm-hmm. going through it every day. Uh, but the other issue is in, in the patients with spinal cord injury, having the peg there actually reduces their ability to progress in rehab. I don't know how many people know this, but since we are a pressure system and you punctured them technically at both the trach and the peg site. Mary Mastery will be proud. I'm quoting her. She would say, we need to seal up and or get these systems 
back to normal physiology as soon as possible because it helps the patient build that core strength again and participate in OT and PT better and more efficiently. And we know that if they get stronger physically, they're going to have less risk of pneumonia. So it kind of kind of works in our favor to, to advocate for the patient. Awesome. I love it. Okay. <laughs> I know, I know. So they did this. Yes, this was interesting. Morpeth and Williams. Vocal fold paralysis after anterior cervical disectomy and fusion. It was published in the laryngoscope, so more of an ENT journal. But they wanted to look at patients who'd had the ACDF, and then they looked at the ones in which the complications were identified, which they, out of 411 patients, they said 5% had complications, and that all 21 had right-sided approaches. But then there's another study, and I'm going to lose it here, where it says that which side the surgeon went in on didn't really factor in. I disagree with that. But I, I find that surgeon preference is how they were trained to go in on the left or the right. But I find that more physicians appear to me to go in on the right. What do you find? I actually, because working in skilled nursing, we don't get those specific of notes. Oh, Okay. Okay. Yeah. We're lucky if it says patient underwent ACDF surgery. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I get that. Yeah. Those records don't yeah. come to you. <laughs> so, well, I thought that was interesting because that is super interesting. That was, you know, and sometimes you can look and see like the slight scar line and it'll show you. I mean, I guess you had just looked. <laughs> you could look. You could look. But I find that the right side has a bit more complication, but I also see that our physicians do more on the right. So that could just be that. Interesting. Yeah. I feel, I feel like, I, I don't know, this is like a horrible generalization, but like the, the ACDFs that I do see, it's like, I don't know, I'm trying to say this in like the most PC way, but they're like young, energetic, intelligent people, yes. you know, that are yes. just all of a sudden like, what the hell just happened to me? Yes. You know, so like a lot of them, I just ask, what, you know, what did happen to you? And they're able to give me the play-by-play to like the hour. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, now I definitely will make it a point, you know, to say, well, which side did they go in on? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just love looking through this list of resources and just seeing that there's actual titles that say dysphagia after ACDF. (laughs) Because I feel like sometimes I say, sometimes I say things to like, you know, to doctors and facilities and they're like, I had no idea that was a correlation. You know, I think they think that it's just like spec that we just are assuming this and it's not. There's actual research to support it. And most of the research has all been written by MDs who actually yeah. <laughs> yeah. work in that particular area. It's yeah. not all SLPs. This other study from Butte, Butler, Sweeney and Conley, recurrent laryngeal nerve injury with ACDF in the spine magazine they found that there was greater risk of recurrent laryngeal nerve injury. Did 173 procedures from the right, 155 from the left. So in their study, you know, almost equal there. Nine had dysphonia after surgery. Five had a left approach. Four had a right approach. So to them, that's kind of more half and half. Yeah. Which may be the case in other parts of the country. What do you think, Michelle? I mean, this is a super, super general question, but... Mm -hmm. You know, I know, like we talked about, we're SLPs, we're super helpful people. We just want to treat this when sometimes it's just edema. Yes. So what about thick liquids with this population? Is there any kind of do's or don'ts or just patient specific? 
I have found in general, for those who have a lot of edema, if there's no recurrent laryngeal nerve involvement, that liquids usually get through easier than any solids. I have actually kind of advocated for a special diet for this population when that occurs. Um, We have to don't laugh. We have to recode it as a fractured jaw diet. But really all that means is that the diet has to be drinkable, drinkable. Yeah. Yeah. And I have found a lot of patients can actually handle the thin and the thicker liquids. So your creamed soups and all of that before they can handle purees and anything more solid. And so sometimes that's the diet I order. I know I'm still letting them get the tube feeds for the protein and all of the, you know, the nutrition they need for getting stronger and better. But I will send them up three meals a day of a drinkable tray. And they're so happy. They're so happy about anything. Yeah. Have you noticed that too, that sometimes... Yes, yes, absolutely. And that's why I asked because, you know, obviously sometimes people think thicker is the cure to dysphagia. And I know I went in and I saw one guy and he had been put on honey thick liquids and he's like, it just, I I can't get this stuff down. I can just feel it just sitting in there. Do you know what we should do? What? We should force any speech pathologist who wants to give patients honey thick liquids to survive on it for one day. Yeah. I, I want to see, I want to see how they do. And yeah. how, how, how do you feel? It doesn't even naturally occur in nature. I just, <laughs> yeah. I'll be honest. If I do the MBS IMP protocol, I might skip honey on many occasions because I just don't get it. But my other pet peeve, which we're going to go to really quick, which is an aside in general for instrumental studies is that for some reason, people don't necessarily always want to follow the Verabar product line, even when they have it. Point in case we have it. We have the (laughs) whole product line. We're not being stingy at all. You can do whatever you want with it. And they want to mix applesauce. They want to test applesauce because they say it's different than the pudding. And I said, you are correct. Have you done the research on viscosity? They are different. The Verabar is 5,000 CPS and the applesauce is 1,500 CPS. Do you know what else is 1,500 CPS? Thin honey made by Verabar. If you want to test a runny puree, just give them the thin honey. There you go. Understand? There you go. I had to give my pet peeve. I'm sorry. It's one of my big pet peeves. (laughs) Don't understand. I love it. I know. I know. Anything else that you get on regular occurrence from people? No, I think that, I mean, I would just specifically think of like three cases that just, you know, how you have those patients that are just ingrained in your brain for life. Yes. I just have these three ACDF patients that I just will always, they've like changed my whole thinking about this. So whenever I think of something about them, that's when it pops up. Yep. There've been, there've been a few through the years. Yeah. Cause I just remember that guy was like, I just cannot get this honey stuff down. Like I just cannot get it down. Yeah. So, yeah. So the study recurrent laryngeal nerve palsy during anterior cervical spine surgery, a prospective study, a prospective study. Those are hard to come by, by young and friends. So what I liked about this was they scoped every patient before the ACDF procedure. All right. And what was interesting, there were 123 patients scoped pre and 120 scoped post 
because I think they had to come back to the hospital. And they said that there were some patients who had recurrent laryngeal nerve damage before the ACDF procedure was even done on them, which could have been due to like nerve impingement on the back of the neck had already started or for whatever reason, they already had this recurrent laryngeal nerve palsy. And then quite a few people had recurrent laryngeal nerve damage post-op, but didn't present with a hoarse voice. So our whole symptomatology wouldn't have identified it because we're trained, oh, it's hoarse, it's dysphonia. But what if they're not hoarse, but still have recurrent laryngeal nerve damage? That's why I think we had to do the fees too. Yeah. You got to find out. And yeah. You got to find out if they are going to be able to compensate, cross midline with that impaired cord over time, or are, are they just going to need a little bit of help? They need a little bit of filler there. Are there any like telltale signs, Michelle, of what like recurrent laryngeal nerve palsy looks like on a fees? Well, the vocal cord won't hit midline. It won't be moving or... It's the whole paralysis versus paresis. Yeah. So is a little wobbly? Is it sustaining or is it sustaining contact with the other cord? Or is it, in what position is it locked in more paramedian or, or more open? Would you agree? Yes. Okay. Yes. So yeah, that would be the main thing. I guess sometimes I get a little frustrated because ENT doesn't see what we see. They think that you can just continue speech therapy to fix recurrent laryngeal nerve damage. And I'm not saying that some patients won't heal on their own. And I'm not saying some patients can't compensate and cross midline on their own. But sometimes you need a little help from a friend. You, yep. you, you, got, you got to inject. And sometimes scheduling that becomes a bit complicated. Or since this population is sometimes older, especially for the elective group, they could already have baseline bowing of the vocal cords and then get a recurrent laryngeal nerve injury on top. And then there, there ain't no way we're closing that gap without some help from a physician and getting buy-in on that sooner rather than later. Awesome. Do you feel like you have to be really specific in your recommendations to the ENTs? Cause I know like some people are just used to writing like ENT consult and they're like, they're an ENT. They'll know what I need. And it's, no, and then, th- and then they get sent back. Yeah. I don't like to, I don't want to go too far into like saying anything I shouldn't, but sometimes you can personally email text and call the ENT and still not get what you wanted out of it. And I keep getting continued speech therapy, continued behavioral speech therapy. And I, I think that his theory, this is what I'm operating from, is that, oh, we have to give it time to come back. She should just keep doing whatever she's doing with him. But there has been some research that shows if you are to inject with a filler that's more transient, more water-based, which we have several options of, you could plump up that vocal cord and at least get it working on giving them a voice back and protecting their airway and then have it rechecked as an outpatient three months. And if they, you can, you can, if you really believe you should wait the full 18 months for nerve recovery, which some physicians do believe you can inject that guy six times if you want to, with the temporary injection and you can hold off on the permanent thyroplasty till 18 months. I don't care. Just make a plan. And sometimes I don't ever get a plan. Like, (laughs) you know, it's like, there's things we can do and there's things we can't do. You don't want me performing surgery. (laughs) Right. 
<laughs> so, so help, help us help them, you know, yes. pretty much. Yes. Well, thank you. Cause I feel like so many times, you know, I just hear <laughs> SLP say, I just recommended an ENT consult and it's no. like, and they just sent them back to me and they didn't do anything. They didn't even look. And it's like, well, you help, help them help you a little bit. Oh no. I write out so. dysphonia. <laughs> Wet vocal quality. I even send them the modified results. Aspirating yeah. during the swallow. Suspect vocal cord closure. <laughs> like, you know, or I saw it on, on the fees exam. I will write that. And so sometimes I'm real frustrated when they do like a quick scoping. They don't do all the vocal tasks. And they'll be like, oh, the vocal cord's mobile. Well, yeah, it might be mobile. It might be paresis, but it doesn't mean it's working. Right. Anyway. <laughs> right. Oh, that's a, that's a little, you've got me on the soapbox there. But yeah, working on that. That's the, that's the benefit of the, of the SLPs that get to work closely with ENTs. I think they get, they get spoiled to have that special relationship yeah. where they can get their needs met. And those of us who don't ever see one or rarely see one are always struggling to make that connection and be heard. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess, so, so let me ask you, so is there a gigantic difference in like ACDFs and spinal cord injury as, as like two separate conditions, you know, obviously they are two separate conditions, but are they treated similarly? Well, I, I don't generally get that patient that I think you're getting who comes to you with, they just had an ACDF and they're deconditioned and have dysphagia. I, I'm more prone in, in inpatient rehab to get the patient that had the ACDF post-trauma. Gotcha. And so they had an injured cord on top of inability to breathe, on top of the fact they might have temporarily gone mildly anoxic, on top of the fact that they hit their head hard enough to break their neck. Like, you know, yes. it's, a, it's a little bit... That's why for me, figuring out sometimes the nerve versus the the mechanical nature of the injury is sometimes a little more challenging. I think my patients think I'm nuts that I keep doing oral mat cranial nerve exams on them, but I'm trying to like track it really carefully. Yeah. It change yeah. not change. So I find that to be a valuable serial assessment tool to keep doing and seeing if you're noticing any, any changes. And I'm a big proponent of if someone's trached, I don't know how many people out there suction or don't suction. We won't go there, but Check the color of the phlegm on the wall. That's, I mean, I know that sounds gross, but color determines illness. You and I get a cold, you know, we try and get to clear runny as quickly as possible. A lot of these patients are hawking up a lot of blood and green stuff and there's an active infection. And I always tell speech pathologists, you might save a life and not how you think you might save a life. You can smell infection. You know, yeah, you can really yeah, smell yeah. it. And so these patients with trachs, if you're smelling something, go ahead and ask for a culture because that patient might really need some strong antibiotics. So I think those are some things we can advocate for in terms of the care of, of this patient. But straightforward ACDFs, I don't typically get unless they, they were an ACDF and then say they had a stroke two years later. I get that group. Um, so they had some baseline mechanical dysphagia and now they have a neuro one on top of it. I find it interesting how many people post ACDF learn to compensate for the rest of their life and don't recognize that they probably have a residual dysphagia. They take that liquid bolus wash after every bite of food. 
I just think it's something to be aware of is that you can, you can functionally resolve to some extent and maintain nutrition and hydration, but they're never going to be quote what they were at baseline. You know, I'm not yeah. going to use the word normal. I'm not going to use the word. Yeah. None of us are normal. None right. <laughs> well, that's, that's why I love that study where they actually looked at them before the ACDF because yes. it's like how many times we're like, that's what this surgeon did. How dare this surgeon do that? You know, and then it's like, well, shit, they've been living with it for years. Yes, yes, yes. So, and they probably didn't even know it. Yeah. And then I do think there's this one article on, you know, the cost of care associated with ACF, yes. which, you know, we I are talking we are, about that. Yeah. Moving towards this, you know, we have to be really careful about patient resources and what costs. And I'll tell you why doctors don't consult speech after ACDF. I'll tell you what I've heard. You're going to tell me they have dysphagia you do realize you just operated in a region that could cause dysphagia. So it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy if I then tell you that they have dysphagia. They didn't want to hear that. Because if you tell them they had dysphagia, they have to monitor that. Hey, you've thrown a diagnosis in the book. Now they have to manage it, which increases the length of stay, which dings them some points over here in the point bucket. Might ding them a bonus too. That's all I'm saying. And so they'd rather not know that they have dysphagia because then they can discharge and play stupid. That's, that's, so they saved money on length of stay. Now, did they save money on complications? Well, you and I can think of the cases in which they did in fact not save money on the complications. The patient that got pneumonia, the patient that struggled to eat for seven days and like lost a large amount of muscle mass and weight or got a UTI or got dehydrated or whose blood pressure went off the charts. And now that patient's vent dependent and, and like really sick and didn't have to be if we had kept them in the hospital a couple of days to, you know, maybe, maybe they needed a peg and some outpatient SLP services after the peg was placed, but not consulting us was, I mean, we don't necessarily increase length of stay if we, if we have our ducks in a row about maybe the acute care SLP does the instrumental and then gets them to outpatient, but do we have a coordinated plan is what I would say. And I would advocate that a lot of people need to figure out what their, what their organization's pathway could be so that they don't increase length of stay and and increase those costs, but they do give the patient what they need in terms of follow-up healthcare. Yes, absolutely. All right. Well, I'm going to ask you, do you have any final thoughts? Michelle? Final thoughts. I think my final thoughts are the same soapbox that I'm sure some other people that have presented on your podcast are, which is, if you don't know, please learn. There are so many things like your podcast. There are experts. There's listservs. There's Facebook. There's a million places that you can post your questions And I would hope that for every question people post that they're not mocked, because I don't think that's a way to teach anybody. We should, my pet peeve is when someone says, don't, don't laugh at me or don't think I'm stupid. I'm like, I never thought you were right. People that don't ask that I have a problem with, because I really think that in our field, that since so many people are little islands and they're by themselves out there, they really need to find a group that they can learn from, practice with, train with, keep that anatomy strong. Don't forget it. And if you were never taught it, learn it. Yes. That's it. I love it. 
I love it. Thank you so much, Michelle. Sure. Do you have I have one final question for you? Yes. Is there a favorite study or what is something that's had a huge impact on your practice or anything that really slapped you in the face and turned things upside down? You know, I guess in having some colleagues in head and neck cancer and seeing that we all aspirate. I think this is the, 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 the thing that slapped me in the face. We all aspirate. We all penetrate and we make it. Yep. And so what puts us at greater risk for complications, what puts us at less risk for complications, just trying to be more fair about that. Because I feel like a lot of people are very black and white. Aspiration equals no. And, and if they didn't do that, then we can give them whatever they want. And I don't think either is correct. I think we need to look at safety. We need to look at efficiency. We need to look at all the parts we need, we need to look at clinical reasoning. And unlike our colleagues who I train with in OT and PT, they are t- in nursing, they are taught much stronger. They're, they have whole textbooks on clinical reasoning. Yeah. We don't have one. Yeah. Wait, why is that? So I think that blew my mind when I've read some textbooks in nursing and OT and I've thought, we really need to be coming up with a hypothesis for each patient and then, you know, weighing the, the pros and cons of every treatment decision we suggest, every instrumental we suggest. And I don't think that enough people do that. I think they just follow what they, they've been taught by one other person. They don't think. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so very black and white. If you see this, then do this. Yes. Yeah. And that's not how it is. Not. Yeah. Not. Well, thanks for getting on that soapbox, Michelle. Sure, sure. I can probably get you on soapboxes all day. I love it. Oh, you could. (laughs) I have a lot of them. Well, thank you. This has been so helpful. I know this is such a topic that once people realize it's been cracked open and this is something that we need to talk about. Okay. Yeah, it's important. So, all right. Well, thank you so much, Michelle. This has been so helpful. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.